0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program... I'm looking at comics which tell local stories, and also stories that involve marginalised people in various communities. Later in today's show, I'm talking to graphic novelist Susan Sainsbury about her two slice-of-life graphic novels, Cheery Cack and Kitty, which tell female-led tales set on the south coast of England, burgeoning sexualities and the travails of life in a small seaside town. However, to start off with, I'm talking to the acclaimed cartoonist Jaime Hernandez in a Q&A recorded at the Lakes International Comics Art Festival celebrating the 40th anniversary of the fantastic comic Love and Rockets co-created with his brothers Mario and Gilbert. In this career retrospective, I'm talking to Jaime about how he and his brothers broke into the industry, his beloved character Maggie the Mechanic, Highlights of his run on Love & Rockets so far, such as the story Flies on the Ceiling, and much more. The interview was recorded in front of a live audience, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. So, 40 years of Love & Rockets. You and your brothers uh, started self-publishing Love & Rockets with not necessarily any idea that it would ever find an audience that maybe something that could have been shared with your friends. Fantagraphics reprinted the first issue and asked you guys to fill it out but even then did you have any kind of inkling that it would be something that you would be doing for years or maybe even in your wildest dreams decades afterwards
0: it was more it was more like hoping yeah you know um i just wanted to do comics and that was the only thing i was good at (laughs) and uh i just uh we just hoped that we would find some people who liked our comic you know mm. but we had no idea we there was the market in 1981 the comic market in the united states was marvel or dc or die you know mm. and um we had no we we really didn't know if there was a place for us but but part of us were cocky and and young and we just go, we know this is good, you know, but but I don't know if the rest of the world will think so. <laughs> you know.
1: And I suppose, you know, in the modern age, uh, when, you know, you're in a certain part of the world, you perhaps are vaguely aware of other independent comic creators that are, you know, applying their wares that are trying to break into the industry. I mean, certainly the early 80s felt like a period where there was enormous kind of expe- uh, experimentation going on, loads of people... You know, doing amazing things with independent comics. You know, you and your brothers, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle guys, uh, Dave Sim with Cerebus. But I guess all of these things were happening independent. You know, you may, were you aware that this was an era where actually independent comics were starting to flourish?
0: Um, no, I didn't. I I just uh, we were really naive and we just thought, well, this is comics. Hopefully, someone will see this. You no. know, um, I knew that. Cerebus and ElfQuest were like self published mm. comics. Um but I was into what I was doing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh you know, at the time there was Raw and there was Weirdo and uh but I still didn't think we fit in, you know. Uh,
1: I dare so... say all of the others felt the same.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And so um it was It was just no alternative market, I mean mm. nothing, nothing. It was a wasteland out there, and uh but we were just we were dumb enough to just do <laughs> what we wanted you mm. know and and hope for the best mm. you know and i didn't know if I was going to do this forever or what, but I wanted to because mm. you know, that's all I knew how to do,
1: <laughs> yeah I think one of the things that makes um Love and Rockets unique, both the work that you and Gilbert do, is that it is such a kind of mashup of different influences. You're bringing in your experience of the world around you. You're bringing in some of the iconography of kind of family-friendly, uh, kind of humor comics. You bring in some of the iconography of superhero comics. I guess you were doing that just because it was it was what you were interested in, rather than thinking this is something that no one else is doing.
0: Right, um, part part of both. Okay. Um, actually, um, I was drawing what I knew, you know, the more, the more I put in my, the personal stuff, um, I started to draw more toward that. That's why eventually the rockets and robots kind of faded mm. out because I, I started to get more excited about my neighborhood mm. <laughs> than, uh, than that stuff. Um, as fun as it was to draw, I just, just. Drew to uh, to to what I knew, mm. and uh, and then the other part that you said, uh, oh, because no one was doing it. Yeah, we're from Southern California. Pe- all most of the people in the world was Beverly Hills and the beach, mm. Mm. you know. And I go, well, there's a where I come from, we don't have either of that. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yes, we had beach, but. We uh we did we were we had our own culture, mm. you know we're Mexican American. Most people didn't know what that was, <laughs> you know. Um and and we just go God our culture is just so colorful and full mm. of full of stuff to do. So we just uh just put that in, and uh and and like you said it was it was uh, because we figured no one knew about it. Or no, or most people, you know, didn't, didn't know that existed mm. in that part of the world.
1: I mean, it's really interesting that kind of almost retrospectively, the kind of things that you were doing, telling stories about female wrestlers, telling stories about sort of like third-rate superheroes, where they're practically cosplayers rather than actual heroes. They're just kind of like wandering around in their costumes in the streets. It feels... Uh, 40 years later, that you were almost predicting things that would then be eventually (laughs) popular in culture. That was an
0: accident. (laughs) But, I mean,
1: I wonder if that's always the nature of the counterculture, that the mainstream culture looks at what's bubbling on under the surface and eventually it kind of, like, erupts into the mainstream.
0: Right, right, yeah.
1: Um, Thinking of, you know, the kind of comics that were being made in the early 80s, it feels, you know, having read the stories of other creators that maybe it was also going hand-in-hand hand with people going to local printers and doing gigs for flyers and posters for flyers, mm-hmm. the people who were making their comics were using the same equipment, so perhaps that's why some of the iconography from like you know, band imagery was also soaking into comics as well did you kind of think perhaps that's what you guys were doing or was it just because you like going to gigs and you saw this kind of imagery that you thought will include it in our comics as well?
0: Well yeah it was um because uh in the late 70s punk got had a big influence on me the mm. the culture the bands the, the you know the music everything um and i liked the diy aspect of it mm. you know like that was the first time i was like you mean i can do what i want you know and not care what the rest the rest feels you know and uh so You know, we saw bands, local bands in LA, um, who uh, who who didn't um, who didn't take off Mm. uh, right away because uh, you know here and in New York, say uh, there were (coughs) punk bands on with big on big labels. Mm. We we didn't have that. You know, they didn't want this gruffy. Stuff in LA because uh, it was too dangerous or whatever, <laughs> you know. And uh, so they went more for the new wave, the knack, and the motels, and be- bands like that. But nobody wanted this this street grungy thing. And um, and so I saw that as it was a good opportunity because because I saw it from the bottom. Mm. you know and and where nobody wanted us (laughs) you know and and everyone was doing their own thing making flyers and stuff and there was uh there was a couple artists gary panter who's big now um uh pettibone they were doing comic drawings on Mm. the flyers and i just remember going that's awesome comics (laughs) comics and punk and it just made sense you know and uh so just things like that just started to um just like like feel right and feel and give us confidence, basically. Mm. I was, you know, I was in my late teens, so I was ready, you mm. know, to bust out. And it was kinda of, you know, my introduction to the real world. I I came from a small town, you know. Mm. But um uh, it was just uh, it was just like the floodgates are open. Let's just do this. Yeah. And nobody here seems to care that they're not making. I mean, maybe they did. They <laughs> <think laughs> they would like to make money, but <laughs> but to exactly. me, it was just like, oh my God, we're just doing this at the by the skin of our teeth, and 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 no one's t- no one can tell us not to. Mm. You know, they're trying to tell us not to, <laughs> but you know, we're not going to listen. And. and it's just kind of, that's kind of where the spirit of Love and Rockets came. We're just like, like, uh, let's do this, man. We don't care. I mean, we got nowhere to fall. We're already at the bottom.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um,
1: Obviously, Love and Rockets is an anthology. Uh, Not only an anthology of you and your brothers doing work alongside each other, but also kind of an anthology of your own strips. You might do Two to ten page strip of a certain bunch of characters, and then a longer strip of another. Um, in terms of kind of curating the content, I guess right at the beginning it was just we need to fill the pages. But as it went on, uh, did you discuss with Gilbert what was he doing for this issue? Should I be doing something that reacts against it or complements it? How, how did you kind of curate the um, the content?
0: It was it was just uh, it was up to each other to just fill right fill half the book or whatever um but i was always watching what gilbert was doing and gilbert was already he had already been doing comics longer than me and he had uh and he seemed to know how to tell a story i didn't know <laughs> the first the very first issue is this big jumble mess from me because i started it when the brothers needed me to fill pages mm. and I was like oh I don't know what I got i go, okay I got Maggie I got uh her friend Hopi I got uh, and I that's why the first issue just I just threw everything my whole life into that mm-hmm. into that first issue and I was learning on the way how to tell a story or I guess complete a story mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and uh, so that uh that was interesting. Uh, Gilbert already knew that, and so watching Gilbert, I was just like, "Oh my God, he's going gangbusters!" I better catch up. You know, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily competition, but it was like, if I want to earn my keep in this comic, I better mm. I better step it up. Mm. You know, and uh, a lot a lot of times he did the same with me. You know. Yes. Um, But most of the time, especially in the first, say, 20 issues, Mm. I was just like, got to catch up, got to catch up. Oh, my God, he did a whole graphic novel, (laughs) or that's not what they are called at that time, but he did a whole story in one issue. How do you do that? (laughs) Front, middle, end. And so I was just like, scratch, scratch, scratch. I guess, Megan, hope you need a place to live. That was me. (laughs) That was what I had. Nice. Nice.
1: Um, but it's really nice in a way that it, it does kind of like vary that you know, like you said, Gilbert might do a whole story in his half, and you might do three short stories. Yeah. I think as an anthology, that kind of breaks up the rhythm, and it's really interesting for the reader to have different story beats and different kinds of storytelling within the same anthology.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, was kind of like we liked the variety mm. put in the comic. Well, Gilbert's got a really story a serious story here. Maybe I'll just goof it up a little bit. And then he will do the, if I had a serious story, he would do the same thing. You know, just to, uh, we just always liked the comics to have their their, uh, variety of of stuff. Nice. Yeah.
1: Um, Your style has obviously kind of changed over the years. You know, if you look at the early issues, you're doing loads of cross-hatching. And then as time goes on, your panel breakdowns get similar, uh, get simpler. You do much larger kind of washes of uh, black ink or kind of you know uh, white negative space. Was that out of expediency, or did you feel that you were just kind of finding a style over time that actually suited you as a storyteller?
0: It was. It was um, just finding. It was a natural thing, but mm. but. Um, you know looking back i was like okay i did it like this then i then i cleaned it up mm. and i'm like did i get lazy <laughs> and i was like no oh no no it was just that um that pretty soon the comic was um my comics were i'm putting in lines that i need not want you know mm. and and uh it doesn't need all the little lines. One of these lines is gonna speak for a thousand lines. You know, that's basically what it was. And I liked that um I like that clean look, you know. Mm. I remember people had all kinds of names for it and I was like, Oh really? It's it's a <laughs> it's a style? I didn't know. <laughs> you know. But um yeah, it uh it was just pretty much um my brain naturally said, "Well, does it need this? Does it need that? Sure, I want the page to look pretty, but instead of one image with all this detail and stuff, the whole page will be the 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 image. Mm. You know, so I would start to draw. I started to, to draw. I would just uh, letter balloons, and then I would uh, and then I would fill in the main." the main characters and then I, I and always look back at the page and I go what does this need mm. so it was almost like the, the whole page was, was the image mm. and so I, I can't finish I mean it's not done till uh, I'm satisfied with the whole thing mm. I, I look back at it you know and go oh this needs more black or this needs mm. more or maybe this does need some cross hatching here Mm. Or something just as a balance. So, and I don't work in order. So, the drawing, I start do a drawing here, then I do a drawing here, and then I do one there, do one there, you know. And that's why at the end I have to look at it and go, did this work out? Mm. And then I'll have, let's say, a blank panel, and I'd go, well, maybe this could use a little more detail, mm. you know, to balance out the page.
1: But that seems like a really good idea because it's all very well-thinking. I have to get from top left to bottom right in terms of telling the story. But people who enc- encounter the page as a whole and then your, air, your eye is kind of led around the page depending mm-hmm. on detail, depending on uh, one image being more dynamic or larger than the other. So actually thinking of it as a cohesive unit is just as valid a way of storytelling, I think, as a comic creator yeah. as any other.
0: Yeah. Helps me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, like, like I said, you know... I feel that you know it's obvious that your style has changed from year to year but um, once it kind of settled down for want of a better phrase into the style that you kind of would then use uh, for an extended period of time even as time went on were you aware of kind of using different techniques in different years Um, I mean I was rereading some of the back catalogue over the last few days and something like a mid period Uh, Book, which is literally like halfway through your run so far, it felt like you were going through a period where I'm going to use lots and lots of black on the page in (laughs) in certain stories, and then others are going to be just a fine line against a white background. So are you kind of always pushing yourself? I I want to go through a period where I'm going to use loads of black. I'm going to go through a period where it's more of a sort of clean line style.
0: Uh, No, it's a natural progression. It's just whatever works for me, because sometimes I'm just tired. I don't, you know, I don't want to draw a million things. I don't want to draw cars. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never want to draw cars. But I must be from Southern California because they're always in cars. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, uh, no, it, it's a natural thing, you know, because it's just if you laid out every issue side by side, every page side by side, the whole forty years, you'll just see it how it how it transforms, and it's yeah. just a natural thing of what I believe works, you mm. know. I mean, I admit there are times where I'm like, I don't want to draw a background here. <laughs> I just <laughs> I don't want to do something. this, and I, it's just the two heads talking or whatever, and and sometimes I go, well, I could have added something, but I go, ah,
1: nah, nah, nah. <laughs> and, you know. um, I, probably like a lot of people, first encountered Love and Rockets through the collections that started to come out in the late 80s. Um, and also, you know, you and your brother's names started to appear in, like, cultural magazines and fashion magazines uh, alongside other, you know, kind of pioneers of comics in the 80s. You know, I would see uh, you and Gilbert being mentioned alongside the names, uh, the likes of Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, you know, people who felt, who, who seemed to be really transforming comics into uh comics are not just for children anymore a uh, period where actually it was being appreciated as both mm-hmm. an artistic and literary medium that maybe comics fans had realized this already for you know a couple of decades but the mainstream media were starting to realize actually this is a medium that is worthy of attention um was there a point where you began to see that yourself that you were being kind of like recognized um, not only in America but also on the world stage for what you were doing
0: right well, sure, sure, but I've always, I've, I don't know, could shoot me in the foot, but I've always done it on my terms. Mm. I go, they like me, good. They like me because what I did, not what I could give them. Mm. You know, not the possibility of what I can give them. I, I, I'm going to do what I do, and I've been doing that ever since. You know, mm. um, you know, sometimes. Sometimes when it is, you know, taken seriously and there's a magazine that does an article that's not, it's not a comic magazine, but they'll do, uh, they'll, they'll do an article and then they'll take a, a, they'll take a drawing from the comic. Mm. And sometimes I'm like, oh, why'd they pick that? (laughs) Like, oh, I drew her so crooked. Her face is just crooked. Or, you know, or oh, the context, Ugh. So there's that, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm like, couldn't they pick something more? <laughs> Elegant, <laughs> you know.
1: Well, actually, I, I mean, I, I, I think the British, the early British uh, reprints were excellent for that. Um, uh, I'll give a shout-out to Ryan Hughes, who's up in the wings, uh, for designing excellent covers for those yeah, first British really ones. Very,
0: very well done, Ryan.
1: Um, and it did feel that maybe because... Uh, you guys were being associating, uh, being associated with music, with fashion, with style, outside of the normal comics readership. Perhaps that's why it needed a slightly different kind of iconography to introduce these strips to people who might not normally read comics.
0: Yeah, um, sure. Take what you can get. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, I remember when we first came. We came to London in uh, '88. That was mm. the first time we were here. And Lovin' rockets was doing pretty well, here, and uh, and I remember we had like a uh, a handler or an agent guy that was taking care of us, and he put us all in the fancy magazines and stuff like that, and he got us in there, and uh, Gilbert and I were just kind of like, <laughs> all right, okay, cool, <laughs> you know, I'll I'll take it, but you know, it's like, like. Wow, you really want us rock stars, you know, or <laughs> you know. and uh, that was cool.
1: Nice. Yeah. Um, ironically, I first came across your work not in Love and Rockets, but in the miniseries The Return of Mr. X, mm. um, which mm. is a really fantastic kind of retro science fiction book. Um, and it's an example, actually, of a strip where all three of you, all three of the Hernandez brothers, worked on the same strip together, mm-hmm. rather than being alongside in the same yeah. anthology. And although you were kind of picking up the strip from a previous artist, Paul Ravosh, uh what was it like designing an entire world? You know, because... Looking at Love and Rockets, obviously you are taking a little bit of design from this. You're looking at the places where you were living, like Oxnard and yeah. L.A. But with Mister X, you have to design an entire kind of retro-futuristic city.
0: Yes, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I made it all up. It was uh, I, you know, it's like, well, it's very retro. It's very uh, uh, film noir. It's very, you know, it's very, uh, uh, yeah, and. and from the period and I was like okay uh, let's do it okay what do you want the city to look like let's see okay I'll round corners and that'll Mm. make it seem like the 30s (laughs) you know that's basically what I did and I would just draw a building as I was going along and but I would give it that little curve Mm. and uh, some people thought wow that's amazing and I was like (laughs) good yeah okay okay <laughs> but um, yeah it's hard it's hard to get me to uh, do what you want me to do you know, <laughs> you know it's so uh, but um, but yeah we we had kind of fun but, but we had you know there was problems with the publisher and we, so we backed off after four issues mm. you know we were going to do six issues but it just got a little little hard to deal with Mm. with our publisher, you know, he wasn't paying us and, and everything. And he thought he was pretty cool <laughs> going like, I swindled the Hernandez brothers. Look at me, I'm famous. And it's like, no, you're not famous because you ain't around anymore. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of fun to do, but we still didn't, we still couldn't put 100% of ourselves in it. Mm. You know, I was going from Gilbert's script, and part of Mario's ideas as well, and and uh, we would, and then when we would do Love and Rockets on the side, it was just more, it was just more us, mm. you know. So, so I'm glad it, it turned out well, mm. but it was it was kind of weird to, kind of just only give a, a certain part of myself mm. to it.
1: But even even with that, I mean, it did feel like again you were kind of ahead of the curve. Looking at that kind of retro-futuristic style of Mister X is something that would then turn up in the Batman animated series yeah. the following decade, and you got there first, kind of thing. Yeah, you know.
0: for, uh, from what I hear, the the I don't know if it's a rumor or what, but that when uh, uh, Bruce Tim, who did made the design designed the Batman show. Um, when he went to pitch, he had a copy of Mister X. He goes, uh, "I wanted it to look like this," and I was like, "Of you course, should have you got did. a credit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Um, with you know, like I said, Love and Rockets being an anthology and giving you an opportunity to tell uh, a certain story about a certain character in a certain number of pages, were there any particular issues where you felt, "Oh, I've really..." you know, I'm really cooking with this one. I've really done something that I should be proud of. Or did that sort of emerge perhaps later when you finish the work and you have a chance to reflect on it? Because for me, looking at those early issues, um, there's a strip that's reprinted in the collection, The Girl from Hoppers, uh, called Flies on the Ceiling, that feels like particularly, sorry to blow smoke up your ass, uh, an early masterpiece uh, basically, by you, where you just hit every kind of possible mark in terms of storytelling, in terms of page construction. Right. Did you did you think I've done something great here, or was it just sure, part sure. of the course? No,
0: I did because that that story took almost ten years to develop in my wow. head. Okay. At first, it was going to be a multi-issue, hundred-page story or whatever, and I I would I would. Just, go well it's okay but where's where do i go from there i couldn't figure out where to go from there so mm. i would scrap it in my head and keep doing the the comic you know as uh, with the maggie Hopey stuff and stuff but that was always nagging me in the back of my head like mm. because people would ask me they would constantly go um what happened to izzy in mexico Mm. And I go, ah, you will see. And I had no idea. (laughs) You know, I've got, I still got certain things about Maggie's life and stuff that Mm. I go, one day I'll know why. (laughs) Why she wears that brace on her her foot. You know, one day, you know, and that one, that one's coming longer than all (laughs) of them. But uh, yeah, Izzy in Mexico, because I mentioned I mentioned uh, out of one story where Speedy and his buddy are talking about Izzy, and he's talking about Maggie and stuff, there's so many little snippets in that conversation that I turned into full mm. full-fledged <coughs> stories. Izzy, where he said, "Then my sister went to Mexico, and that's when people were going. What did she do in Mexico?" I was like, I don't know, so it took a while for that one to gel, but when I put it down, I was like, First of all, it was like the I love drawing horror, I love drawing you know mm. um, and uh, I love reading horror, that's political <laughs> <laughs> and um and so so that one came you know from a lot of redoing, and then it got smaller and smaller, shorter and shorter, and I go. This is all I need. So mm. it's it's kind of like it's the second or third chapter of the original mm. one, but this mm. was the only one I was interested. This part.
1: Mm. I mean, it's interesting, you know, that you were saying as time goes on, there are still stories that you feel like you need to fill in. So right, at, you know, at the beginning of Love and Rockets, you would have flashbacks to when the characters were young, and now in the present day, as the characters have aged in real time, as you've been doing the comics you still have flashbacks, but now the flashbacks are times that we've kind of read already, but you're not adding extra details to older stories. Yeah. And, and that must be fun as a storyteller.
0: Yes, but it's, it's, I gotta be really careful of not rewriting mm. Love and Rockets history, mm. because that would that's really easy to do.
1: Chapter two was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and so, I, uh, so I, I'm really careful of like, okay, I wanna do a flashback of Maggie when she was 15. But I can't change what she already did, mm. so I got to find a little, little pocket of time where she could, this will fit, you know, and stuff like that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I was amused by a note to the reader that you put in a recent issue, kind of in the panel uh, border, saying "thick lines means a flashback." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Do you not always trust the reader to understand what you're doing?
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I. I, I I I never want to confuse the reader, yeah. you know, there are times where I want, where I put something vague in there so the reader can fill in the rest, mm. you know, I do that a lot, I just want the reader to be so into the story, you know, be part of the story, mm. you know, and, uh, so, yeah, I do that, um,
1: You said that, you know, as time went on, the kind of the rockets faded out because you were more interested just in telling human stories. But even in Volume 4, you know, in in recent years, you still have stories about aliens and monsters and vampires. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I guess just in terms of the genres that you're interested in, uh, it's irresistible to not continue doing those stories. And certainly as a reader it feels like uh t- to mix my metaphors you know like as a chef you're adding an additional ingredient that then adds balance to what else is going on in what you're cooking
0: mm-hmm. yeah um i do the i do the um the monsters and the aliens and the um, the the weird planets and, and stuff um i do that because i love to draw it i mean, <laughs> obviously um and that's how the rockets were in the beginning i just like like drawing that stuff and now uh now i use it as a break from the realities of of the maggie's world Mm. i kind of liked i kind of liked to trap her mostly in the real world Mm. it just just her character works that way at this age Mm. you know the age she's at now but every once in a while, someone throws a curve and she gets caught in a surrealistic thing but but um yeah doing doing the side um monsters and aliens and, and mm. space queens and stuff like that that's just because I need a break I just <laughs> gotta i gotta have both or i'll go I'll go mad mm. you know uh, sometimes sometimes one half takes over and takes up a whole issue because it. It needs it, but I will always come back and have a balance in order to keep me sane. <laughs> mm. You know,
1: and I mean, you probably don't care uh, in terms of how people describe you uh, regarding what genre you're working in. I mean, you know, obviously some of your early strips are you know sci-fi. There's no two ways about it. But looking at the way you work now, kind of moving back and tw- forth between realistic stories and then those kind of brief uh, kind of interludes of fantasy. That makes it feel like actually we're reading a strip that is magical realism. I mean, is that would that be a title you'd be happy with? You know, I mean, I kind of actually think of you at the risk of getting desperately pretentious um, as kind of working in the tradition of other kind of uh, Latin uh, writers like Borghese, You know, working mm-hmm. in that kind of mm-hmm. you know literary tradition.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I had never heard that term till they told us <laughs> that's what we we're doing. <laughs> you know. Um, and Gilbert Gilbert didn't read Marquez till uh, issue fourteen. Right. He was like people kept telling, asking him, you know. So you read a lot of Marquez. and He goes, Who's that? Hmm. You know. And <coughs> and then he realized he he read One Hundred Years of Solitude and went, Oh my God, this <laughs> is really similar. And but he goes, I guess cause we're just we come from the we're cut of the same cloth, you know. And yeah. uh
1: something about Latin America just lends itself to that yeah, kind of storytelling.
0: The, the you know, growing up as kids, you heard stories your your elders told you mm. you know, from their childhood and there was always a ghost mm. or something, you mm. know. And it was just part of the culture and like, oh that oh they had a ghost where, you know, where they used to live, where they grew up. And then you'd go play play ball or something <laughs> you know and it was just kind of regular life kind of thing and uh so that that stuff just was really cool to think back out on like god those stories they told us were so cool and so uh so interesting and and nobody nobody was there to go oh that's fake oh you're into we didn't have any of that you know, we didn't have any of the scoffers. You know, um, it was just kind of like this is life. Oh, that kid, uh, that kid down the street. He saw a, he saw a black dog walking on its hind legs. <laughs> you know, like and and, he screamed and ran into his house. And his grandmother was like, oh, God, the devil. You know, and, and stuff like that. And I was like drinking a beer, going, oh yeah, yeah. My friend was like. Like, see that kid right there? He goes, last night he went home and he saw a, a wounded dog. <laughs> and he goes, and, and he said the dog just stood up and started started walking. And he was just like, the kid's freaked out. And I just remember going, never ends. <laughs> and I just uh, kept drinking our beer and then we started talking about something else. And it was just...
1: And can I work as And it was a just strip? real... <laughs>
0: Cool thing, and that's where all this comes from. You know, it's just like, like, yeah, that's happens in the in the middle of real life. You know, mm-hmm. and then they gave it a name, magic realism, but it was just growing up and <laughs> having having those stories told. And then over the years, I've had people of different cultures mm-hmm. come up to me. I had a Ch- Chinese woman who said, "My mom used to talk about." The ghost that hung out in the trees when mm. she was a little, mm. when she's walking home and she could see people standing in the trees watching her and stuff, and I'm just going, uh huh. How can I steal that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, and I just love that. People from all over the world have their their folklore and their you know and all that, and it just makes it stronger for mm. me. Yeah.
1: And. One thing that Love and Rockets has been rightly celebrated for uh, for many years is uh, the representation of women, the representation of women of all shapes and sizes, the representation of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, You know it's nice actually to see drawings of naked men alongside all the breasts that you would expect uh, you know in, in, in American comics. Were you aware of your audience or were you just actually I want to tell these stories these are the tools that I have and actually I'm not particularly pushing the gender I just want to tell stories about everyday
0: life yeah sure cuz um, like I was saying about um, about that first issue I just threw my whole life in there well part of it was like well let's let's um uh, I had gay friends in high school mm. you know they um, you know I I hung out I hung out with lesbians in punk days, you know and and so we were like, why don't we put that in we don't see that in comics you know mm-hmm. we, Gilbert and I were just like, well let's put this in but but you know, having that responsibility of like now you and I are not these people mm-hmm. but so so we better treat it with all the respect we we could possibly can, you know so my my thing was like, well, if I am not. These people that I'm putting in, in the comic. I, I decided to present it. Present them, to the audience. As much as. As much as I could, where the audience could make up their own mind, mm. and, from that, I I got a really large lesbian following. Nice, you know. Hopi fans were crazy <laughs> you know? and uh, you know and and it was cool and I go okay I did the right thing all I did was present Hopi I just gave you Hopi here she is they filled in the rest and that's when I started to realize the reader helps me a lot and I, I get to invite the reader in where this is as much theirs as it is mine mm. you know even if they ain't gonna tell me what to write, but but uh, it's it's just a thing that I, I I really enjoy and 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 it just brings me closer to the, who's reading it, you know.
1: Nice. Well, on that topic of uh, letting the reader in, uh, if we could raise the house lights, um, could I get a red shirt uh, to beam down and let, get killed by aliens? Um, and uh, see what I did there. Um, presents a roving a roving mic to anyone in the audience who wants to stick their hands up ask a question. Anyone have any questions? Of course you can't hear me now.
3: Hi there um your work is very firmly and brilliantly in the narrative camp. But you said although some of your contemporaries in the early days were things like Cerebus and, and *ElfQuest*, that, that you're you recognised. You also mentioned Weirdo and Raw and Panther. Have you, especially working for Fantagraphics, have you felt any draw towards doing uh, towards the avant-garde side of the work?
0: Toward what? And towards the avant-garde
3: more... Um, oh,
0: no, it, it was just I had outgrown the superheroes, you know, and I, and I didn't like the way the two big uh, Marvel and DC handle it you know I grew up on superheroes I was you know and stuff but but the way they they started to um, the direction they started to go I didn't really uh, I didn't like it you know anymore partly because I I was growing up I was getting older and uh, the other side the alternative side as they called it um, just uh, spoke more to me you know it, it was just uh it to me it was still comics it wasn't like anything further than that but that was good enough but it was um it was just uh just something i understood you know some of it i didn't you know some of it was too arty for me you know i wanted a, a i wanted a, a storytelling i wanted you know more than more than anything and uh so so that was basically it. I it it just uh, in the United States it just it just by the by 1980, the the it just split, you know. And you were this, or you were that. And I related more to that, you know. Uh, you talked earlier about
3: aging the characters in real time. And obviously, that's been 40 years in some cases for some of the most well-established characters aging. What challenges are there, uh, in storytelling, in characters getting older with you, and uh, how does it help you tell stories?
0: Well, um, the thing—the thing that helps me uh, understand my characters as they get older—is that I just, I just picture them growing old with me. You know, I know that Maggie is five years younger than me, and she always has been. <laughs> you know, so I always wonder. Okay, where is she in life? What would she be doing at this age? You know, uh, just like, is she tired? <laughs> you know, does she not want to do anything anymore, like me? You know, um, uh, so uh, that that helps a lot. But uh, 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 what really helps me is the older they get, the more past they have, the more... Uh, you can go back to when she was 17 as a rocket mechanic. And there's just something for me that's just so full of life and so like, like oh my God, she was a baby. We were all babies, you know, and that's just something I've always liked about, I thought was a powerful storytelling tool, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm a old sentimentalist, you know, and so having Maggie and Hopi walking down the street at 17 years old is just like, oh, my God, my babies. You know? <laughs> you know, and then I see them now, and I go, well, you were once babies, now look at you. You know, what, what are you doing? What are you going to do for me? You know, or something like that. And, you know, I, I, um, since I take this stuff so personally, when I'm, doing a, when I'm doing a drawing and say, Maggie's not even in the story, while i'm doing it i still know where she lives Mm -hmm. you know she lives in a part of los angeles not far from me or or something and i kind of take it that way and i and i go well where's Hopi? well maybe she moved you know so i don't know what she's what she's been up to for the (laughs) last five years you know and that's the way i treat it like like they're neighbors and um a lot of artists don't like to admit that because it's like, oh, you, you're crazy because you think they're real people. And I go, well, I have to treat them like real people in order for me to survive and for them to survive. And, uh, and so it just, it just brings them closer to me, you know, when I do it, that, that I know them so well. And uh, we're all old people now, and, and we're just like, no. Shit. <laughs> So, yeah.
1: There was one in the third row just here. You, Simon, yes.
3: When you started the first year or so, you were working against expectations. People didn't expect anything of you, they thought you were at the bottom. So you were full of bigger and working against everyone. Mm-hmm. In the last 20 or so years, you've been fated and celebrated. Is that a
0: problem to still have the uh, the energy and the, the spark in there? Right. Um, the 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 trick is just not to let it change you. You know, um, I I come to this wonderful place and I get a full house, you know, <laughs> and I and it's just so cool. Yet I go home and I. Uh, Pick my nose and draw my comics, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, so it's it's just uh, keeping a balance, you know, because the 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 following can can engulf you, you know, and and you think you're something else that you are, you know, and uh, and but I've never done that, and I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up working class or whatever, you know, or or whatever. So I don't. I don't take anything for granted I don't let it uh i mean after this i'm gonna go feeling after this show i'm gonna go i'm gonna feel ten foot tall because all you wonderful people <laughs> came to see me but um but and I know the reality that um I leave the room and that cat that was out there don't care who I am <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's just keeping a balance of like. Don't take shit for granted because uh because uh you know you fall on your face. <laughs> you know.
1: Uh, one behind you? In fact, two behind you on that. Side. Uh, hi.
3: So you're talking about not wanting to rewrite uh Long Rocket's history and kind of being faithful to sort of what has gone before. Have you ever felt with the um with the early sci-fi stories, uh that uh, you know you, you're now you sort of moved from a world that was quite stylised and had these sci-fi elements into scripts that take place in a world that is more like our contemporary world. Did you have have you ever felt like there's a uh, any contradictions that you need to resolve, or is that something that just doesn't worry you? The fact that like you know they now live in a world where you know they're not they're not hearing about that whole world of rockets on TV or anything like that, but they just kind of go about their normal lives. Is it's is it, is there a contradiction or something.
0: Yeah, um, I just try to treat that as Maggie had this weird job, (laughs) you know, and that, um, and I don't know if it's clear, but Maggie would come home from this job and um, her friends had nothing to do with it. They were never exposed to any of that, any of it, so so to the, their eyes the in the the real world <laughs> they uh they just think maggie had this high tech job you know that she wow you got this job at 17 you know working for rocket mechanic that's all that's as far as they know and i try to see it from their their side that Maggie every once once in a while will refer to her old uh, her old trappings you know, all that but uh, but she it's really hard to explain (laughs) Um, it's it's just I try to just keep it separate, you know and if I feel like if I have a a bug up my ass to just like, shit, I don't care I'm going to have fun, she's going to go visit the old gang at the you know uh, the old mechanics gang you know and uh, and I'll do that but I I just don't I just don't explain it because it doesn't make sense (laughs) you know and so I don't uh, I go this is this is this is where I get to be the boss and say like well she went to go visit the old mechanics crew if uh, anyone has a co- contradicting question about it then uh, that's their problem you know I just doing this was, as a goof yeah. you know and
1: I mean you probably could work some kind of MacGuffin in that on her commute <laughs> she inadvertently was always going through a dimensional gateway that no sure. one else noticed yeah. you know
0: sure I did I did um, some years ago I did <clears throat> my superhero book the God in Science uh, the Thai Girls, Return of the Thai Girls, and Maggie's in it but I make it clear, especially at the end of the story, that she's she's in their world, not they're not in our world. Mm. So there were, um, our world. So did this really happen here? No, it happened somewhere else. And Maggie was the weirdo, the weird uh, visitor, mm. you know. And uh, so that's um, that's become a big question with the character Penny Century. Because something ends her story in, the, in that story, ends her story. And so I go, So is Penny gone or is she not gone? You know, in this world, is she still around? Well, I don't wanna confuse anybody because I don't wanna confuse me. <laughs> you know, so I don't, I, uh, so I'm still wondering can Penny just show up? She used to in the early issues, uh, she would just show up with no explanation. And I go, does that still work? You know, I'm always constantly thinking about, like what you were saying, like that there's this contradicting thing, but but uh, well, you know, that's what's, where the magical realism comes in. But but what's important and what's not important? You know, that's that's always the big question. Like, is this is this does this matter? Why are you thinking about this so long? <laughs> you know, does it matter? They're no. comic book fans. <laughs> yeah. So, um, who knows? i I'm, I've been thinking about Penny returning in some form. Mm. I don't know what. Yeah. But, yeah.
1: <laughs> there was another one.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, um, the, you spoke about the, the the culture and wanting to show your culture. Are you? Are you Where you surprised about how? How much other people are interested in that? And how popular it has been.
0: Maybe it didn't look like a, a popular choice to begin with. Yeah. Um, so you're saying the culture I grew up in is now more well. Oh, it's more more well known now, right? With, or the is fact that what, the
1: audience was that, the, the audience unexpectedly loved it. You know, right?
0: Um, <clears throat> I think it's great. You know, I mean, I'm still. Uh, I'm still living in in Southern California, where I grew up. Um, and television is barely getting it right now, <laughs> you know. It's it's uh, movies barely getting it right, you know. And it's like, or they they come out with one movie and then that's it. It's gone. It's over. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, well, I guess in a way we just we haven't really moved forward. Just people know more about it, you know um but uh but I'm happy that i i was had a little part in exposing my uh <laughs> my background you know you know Anyone on this
3: side of the room? You mentioned Pockets of Time, um, I'm just wondering after how uh, 40 years you keep everything straight, do you have a court board with post-it notes and red string, uh, serial killer <laughs> style, do you have filing an actual notes for Maggie in 1989, or is it all in your head, how do you keep this together, do you have to uh, refer back to all the issues, and uh, yeah, how do you keep it straight?
1: Have you got a serial killer
3: wall?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I uh, um. Most of it's still in my head, but I have a, uh, I have every issue at the ready nearby me, you know, if I need to look. But sometimes I go, "What issue was that in?" I don't, <laughs> I don't want to look, you know, or whatever. Uh, but, of. Uh, yeah, a lot of it's still in my head, and I'm sure there's a lot I've forgotten, you know. Um, but sometimes you bring back a character, and or you do a flashback of. A character, and and you're like, did they die? Are they, not? you know, <laughs> oh God, I don't remember what happened to them. And so you kind of go looking for it, and then you start reading other stories. Like I remember this, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 hard sometimes, but I try to um, just deal with their stream of consciousness now. You know that that if they do, I don't know. I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah.
1: There was one.
3: Yeah. Hi there. Um, this gent's just asked my initial question, but um, I see a Wacom tablet there. Are you interested in digital art at all, or are you mainly still pen and ink?
0: And I'm still posh? pen. I'm still pen and ink on paper. Yeah. Yeah. I've. Uh, how I've done it. I'm doing it how I I did it in the beginning. Um, it's and it's more like um it didn't need help. <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't need need I didn't need to change change it. And uh working on a drawing it on a tablet I wouldn't know how to do it anyway. <laughs> What's this button for? Ooh I erased the whole thing. <laughs> you, know, you know. Um so yeah, yeah. I I just like to It's it's kind of it's kind of like the controlling part of me that that my world when I sit down, my world gets smaller and smaller till it's the size of the page and I want to be in control of every single thing that goes on there, you know? And uh and I don't know it, it. I don't. I don't know if it's crazy, but I'm not going to worry about it. You know. But uh, yeah, I just I have this controlling thing where it's like, there it is. This is everything. Every single thing on here, even the mistakes, are me. And this is from me to you. And that's the way I look at it.
1: <laughs> According to my stopwatch, we have 24 seconds left. What next in Love and Rocket? To make it quick.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> Marriages, divorces, cheating. I, I decided to turn up the opera aspects of it. They've been too relaxed lately, and I'm, I just want someone to go go, "What you're doing? What?" I want, I, so that's what I'm concentrating on right now. And I'm having fun. you know nice. It's like, oh, I remember when I used to do this, just like turn, turn the key a little bit and see what happens. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing that. I just hope I don't get caught in <laughs> something because sometimes uh, I would take too long clearing it up. Mm. You know, the more long, longer than I wanted to. You know, so I just have to be careful of throwing trouble in there and getting out quicker than usual.
1: <laughs> it has been an absolute honor, Jaime Hernandez.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Various Love and Rockets graphic novels by Jaime Hernandez and his brothers are available from their publisher Fantagraphics. These include numerous graphic novels drawn from the pages of Love and Rockets and Jamie's other comics, as well as for people with deep pockets or a particularly friendly Santa in their family, the fantastic new collection Love and Rockets The First Fifty, which for the first time brings together the first 50 issues of the anthology in chronological order rather than separating out the stories by each brother into separate books. For more info about all of Jaime Hernandez's work, as well as his brothers Gilbert and Mario, please go to www.fantagraphics.com and search for Love and Rockets. For more info about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, where my interview with Jaime was recorded, please go to comicartfestival.com. The next Lakes International Comic Art Festival will be in their new location of Bowness on Windermere, from Friday the 29th of September to Sunday the 1st of October 2023. But the organisers of Lycaf also have a smaller event taking place at Manchester University in February, featuring guests Benoit Peters and Dave McKean. So keep an eye on their website for information about that forthcoming event. In the second half of today's show, Another cartoonist whose work looks at diverse sexualities and concentrates on female stories is Susan Sainsbury, who I'm talking to about her two graphic novels Kitty and Cheery Cack, set in a small town on the south coast of England. My interview with Susan was recorded in the back room of a busy pub in Hove, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. It is my great pleasure that we have as our guest tonight, Susan Sainsbury. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Who is the author of two graphic novels, uh, Kitty and Cheery Cack? Uh, so, Susan has prepared a bit of a talk, and then I'll interrupt from time to time if I have a burning question uh, that I need to ask at that point in time. Okay.
4: Well, thanks for coming, and thanks for inviting me to Cartoon County to do a talk. Um, I'm going to talk about my graphic novels and. To start with, I'll talk a little bit about my background. Um, I graduated from Brighton Uni illustration in, in the early 90s and worked as an illustrator for quite a few years. Sorry, I'm having a hot flush. <laughs> um, and uh, I did that for, for about 10 years. And then um, in about 2000, I um, turned to writing. And that was because of the invention of the word processor. Because up until that point, I couldn't write. My writing was almost illegible and badly dyslexic. And also, my spelling was atrocious. And for some obscure reason, the first thing I wrote was a film script, which I entered for a competition, and miraculously, I won it. And that was the Euroscripts International Script Writing Competition. And from that point onwards, I decided to concentrate more on writing than illustration, and it was easy. It fitted in around childcare more and everything, so it just it just fitted in well. And I did a short course at Sussex University in creative writing, and after that I started writing plays and film scripts, which is what I liked doing. I liked writing dialogue rather than description. And My influences through both my illustration and my writing well, for my illustration mainly, was for comics. I loved comic strips and I grew up with reading girls' comics and, you know, I just enjoyed the way that you could read the story with the pictures and the words. They were the things that really, really got me. So, yeah, so that was my, that was my influences.
1: When you did the course at Brighton, I hadn't realised that the sequential design and illustration course had been running that long. In terms of sequential design, you know, did they basically say... You can make a career in comics? Well, or... I did
4: the MA more recently in 2016. Oh, okay. but right. the um, So I did a BA in, in the late 80s, early 90s in illustration, and then I did the creative writing course, or maybe before that, more like 2005, I think. So no, but I felt that I couldn't combine the two. I thought, am I either ah. an illustrator or a writer? So I stopped illustrating mm. and did writing. Um, but yeah. did,
1: that por- did that course give you some of the tools, though, to combine words and pictures?
4: but the, the creative writing course the,
1: uh, the MA of oh, writing oh definitely it did right.
4: yeah that definitely changed things yeah that really that completely changed things so actually and also that and number two please <laughs> <laughs> um, was um, with that and the invention of the drawing tablet because I'd always wanted to draw comics and always liked doing that sort of thing always did it for friends and families but it was just so much hard work I'd always admired people like Posey Simmons and Raymond Briggs but I thought, you know, there's no way I could do all of that. But with a, with a tablet and Photoshop, it just makes things so much easier. Mm. And so I joined the MA in 2016 at Brighton University in sequ- Sequential Design and Illustration. And then that's when I realised that I could actually do the two things that I love, illustration and dialogue. And that, that coincided with um, finding my aunt's diaries when she died. And she'd written lots of things in her diary, but mainly the mundane things like made a cake, made a dress, went for a walk. But she also wrote lots of things that didn't happen, like I didn't go out, didn't do this. And my aunt, by today's standard, led a very uneventful life. She never married or had a partner, never had children, never went on holiday. She didn't do anything. But she, you know, she was very much a product of her time, and that interested me. So she was very much a product of her class, her time and her sex. So I did a lot of research into diaries, and I went to The Keep. up. I think it's part of Brighton University, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but it's certainly connected. Yeah,
4: it's part of that, and I did a lot of research into diaries. I really love the way that diaries, um, they record events, like day-to-day events in a personal life, but also against the backdrop of a bigger thing. So one of the things that stuck out in her diaries was an entry in um, 1939, September, and she wrote something Mm -hmm. like went to church, picked blackberries, the milkman didn't come, dad had toothache, and war broke out. <laughs> in that order. And those, those because, you know, she was an 11-year-old girl, and those was, that's what interested her, you know. And I love the fact that things going on in the background, like even now, you know, like the pandemic or Brexit. It's what, you know, we, we are all focused on that, but we also focus what's going on in our personal life.
1: Mm. Well, and also, to a certain extent, you almost have to tune it out. I mean, I was... Um, mm. Uh, the first lesson of term um, with my students a couple of weeks ago um, I was talking about Cold War uh, culture and I said of course now we're now crazily living in a world again where we're worried about nuclear war with Russia Mm -hmm. so actually some of these things that were going on then perhaps will now start to crop up in culture again and then I thought have I just traumatised a room full of 19 year olds? <laughs> <probably> because <laughs> they were trying not to think about it and I made it sort of front and centre. <laughs> but, but you do have to kind of tune these things out because you can't get on with your life
4: otherwise. You can't, can you? For, the, for Kitty, because of the, the nature of the story and her age, because it started to expand her life from sort of the 1920s up until the, oh, nine, to the early 2000s, I chose a sort of very pastel colour to use because it sort of suited her and sort of very foxed the pages, because I wanted it to look old. It didn't look right on a white background, so I was very careful about the colours that I chose. Mm-hmm. And also the fonts as well. I, I tried so many sort of downloading all these different handwriting fonts, but none of them looked right, so I had to make my own in the end, which was laborious, and the F never worked, so I, had to, I could never, ever get the F to work, so at every single F in both of these graphic novels I've had to go gone over and do in hand by hand again. <laughs> Um, a lot of the research I did was about social attitudes and and sort of world events, women's roles, and I collected loads of ephemera. Ephemera? I can't Ephemer. pronounce that. The ephemera. Yeah. And so I used the mantelpiece as a sort of a as breaking up the book, and it changes mm. as her life changes, because, you know, there's so many things about a mantelpiece that can tell you about a person. And I guess nowadays people have fridge doors or something similar but not everyone has mantelpieces but you know like the green shield stamps the shopping lists and mm. the ration books and you know and as she gets older it's all the things like hospital appointments, optician's appointments, forced teeth etc
1: I think that's really nice having a single image that can encapsulate an era that it's like a scrapbook of a moment in time yeah. um, as a storyteller I mean is it nice to have those kind of tricks in a way for one of a better word that you I can you know, go to yeah. in order to, you know, very quickly get a lot of information to the reader.
4: It's lovely. I, mean, I really, really enjoyed doing the mantelpieces. I would have done more. I only did three, but I would have liked to have done more, actually. In some ways, it would be been nice to have done a whole book just of mantelpieces. <laughs> <laughs> OK, then um, when I finished the MA course, so we're in 2018 now, um, I entered the Jonathan Cape Observer Short Graphic Novel Competition, and I was shortlisted, and that was for the one that's called Big Knickers, and again, I used the pastel palette, it just seemed to suit the subject matter. It was a sort of a coming of age story. But most of the sort of, a sort of like overriding theme in my stories, it tends to be women's issues, coming of age, and not just women, but I mean, as I'm a woman, I relate to women more, but, and also poverty and class, the sort of themes that are often featured. And the other one up on the screen is 300%. That was, some, that was the first one I'd ever written, illustrated for somebody else, which I did during lockdown for a, mm. a pendulum of um, stories to do with being inside the house. That was quite interesting because it made me do something contemporary. I'd have to have mobile phones in and modern clothes, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite nice. And um, yeah, so it's quite good doing a short, short ones after doing the graphic novel, after doing a long one. And uh, next one, please. Oh, no, still on that one. Oh no, we can go there. Yep. Um, This one here is, is some extracts from a another short graphic story called First Offence. And I did this in response to the, all the madness of surrounding Universal Credit when it was rolled out and how it really affected people. It was in the news a lot at the time, and about how it. Basically, how it drives people to be dishonest because you couldn't possibly live on what they—and it's so complicated. So I sort of set it out originally as a guide to sort of show people. So you know, in, you know, I mean, this is, I don't know if these are sequential, these two images, but that they're sort of like she's questioning. So if I do this, then I lose that, and you know, and it's just—it's just, it's just a, a minefield. No one can really understand it, even the people that are, you know working there and I just wanted to see how you could easily fall foul of it and in this story she well she does fall foul of it and she gets deeper and deeper into the a mire. Where was
1: this Um,
4: published? This hasn't been published when I started it um, I just self-initiated it and then I sent it off to big issue and they were interested in it and they wanted to see the rest of it which I hadn't actually finished so I had to quickly finish it and then and then they just said it was too long (laughs) so (laughs) Because it ended up being eighteen pages, and because they, they originally said they were going to do a page each issue, and then and then the rules of universal credit changed. So, I mean, I don't know. Sort of whether they're still going to do it, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I should think not, because so many things have happened since then. It's like it's old news now. So, but also
1: very relevant. I mean, people struggling to survive in what they've got. It is. You know.
4: But the rules of universal credit have changed, so I'd have to change some of the sto- I'd have to change some of the storylines. Mm.
1: So, and. So these shorter stories came after the graphic novels? After Kitty. After Kitty, so between Kitty and and Cheery uh, Cheery Cack. Yeah. Um, How did you find uh, the publisher for Kitty?
4: Um, First of all, I went online and I used the Writers and Artists Cheer book. And um, I think... I went, with, I went with Marcosia, and I, know that they were, I don't know that I found him on, and I think it's because I had a book that was already published by Marcosia that I liked, and I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll contact them, and, and he seemed keen. I had another publisher interested, but they were very difficult to communicate with, and they wanted to make a few changes. I'm not going to mention their name, but I was <laughs> quite frankly appalled by them.
2: Oh, dear. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and they, they met up a few times and were very enthusiastic, and then just wouldn't an answer phone calls and emails and so when Marcosia said they'd go with it with very minimal changes and so i said yeah i'd go with them mm. so.
1: and it we might as well stick with kitty since we've kind of yeah because presumably your notes are going forward yeah uh, yeah um uh, and it, it's kind of based on you finding your aunt's diary and then sort of uh fictionalizing it i guess to a certain, so to certain extent. extent yeah um, had you, in terms of its connection to uh, the sequential design course at Brighton, you thanked your tutors at the end. Yeah. So did you actually start the graphic novel while you were studying? Kitty? Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. It, in fact, it was completed by the time I'd finished. I did oh, the wow. whole thing on the course. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not terribly long. It's quite it's, it's quite thin. You can mm. see it's it's quite a thin book, so it didn't take too long. But it was a lot of work. I mean, I already had... Um, an idea for the story before I started the course and um so I'd sort of done a lot of um a lot of so a lot of the story was planned so it was just sort of and there was it's so supportive on the course mm. and so you got a lot of feedback and so it really encourages you and you get certain deadlines yeah. so yeah so it was done during the two years of the course oh
1: nice so. well in particular if you leave the course having completed a book it looks good for them as well <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, say? this yeah. is what you can achieve well <laughs> yeah um I don't know if it's coincidence or it was something that seeped into your subconscious as perhaps a starting point for the graphic novel. Uh, But in the Mike Lee uh, 1999 movie about Gilbert and Sullivan, Topsy Turby, um, Gilbert's wife is called Kitty. Mm. And there's a moment where he comes back to her after an awards ceremony and she says to him, isn't it a shame that ordinary people don't get rewarded for their ordinary lives? is pretty uh-huh. much your quotation at the beginning of the book. So. That's amazing.
4: Oh, that, I didn't that, know that. that. I mean, I incredible. love Mike Lee films, but okay, that's the funny. only one I didn't like. Ah. <laughs> and it's the only one I watched only half of. But I love all his others.
1: I wonder if that, because you didn't like it, sunk in. <laughs> I
4: wonder if I, <laughs> wonder if I got to that bit. But I do love, I love the ordinaryness of every day. For me, the more, I don't know, I think you could write a whole book about one hour. I just love the little things. I'm mm. not really good at big things. I'm not good on political intrigue or big, big, romance stories i just like day to day and all the little little mm. bits and things that make up people's lives
2: mm.
1: well and that's something you know I, th- I think you observe very well in your graphic novels um when it comes to doing the books do you write the script out in full because you know you talked about having kind of screenwriting uh experience do you write the script in full and then illustrate yes it? i do yeah
4: okay mainly so sometimes I start writing it then get excited and start drawing and then go back to writing it but basically it is all written out first before I um, illustrate yeah
1: nice mm. and do you panelise it at that point or do you wait until you're wearing your artist's hat and then think how do I turn this page of script
4: um, into pictures I sometimes put a mark saying that's the end of that page and mm. sometimes do stick men and stuff and Sometimes I get frustrated by doing just the writing because I think, oh, I just want to draw it because, because obviously, rather than saying, oh, there's a picture of her pouring a cup of tea, I just want to just draw it rather than write down Kitty's pouring a cup of tea. or, Yeah, so it's a combination. But yeah, I think yeah. mainly the strict script is first. I don't think I could do it the other way around. Mm. So, yeah. And
1: thinking of, you know, you, you said how much you liked uh, girls' comics from like, you know, the, the yeah. 70s and earlier yeah. decades. Were there any particular strips in those titles oh, that you yeah. remember as being kind of formative in terms of making you a fan of the medium?
4: Very much so. There was one called Happy Days, which was, was anyone here know? It's illustrated by someone called Andrew Wilson, and it, was, it started in the 50s and um, went through right through to the 80s, I think. And it was about a really normal family, real working-class family, about Sue and her brothers and sisters. And it was just all focused about what her family did and her school life or her best friend. And I loved that story. And then there was another one called Patty's World, which was similar. It was a bit more modern. And that was that started in the 70s. And, um, yeah, that one. They both influenced me a lot. But, I, but the, it's not just the stories. It was the artwork and the way that... that It wasn't just... Because they weren't just grids. They were just like... They moved across the page. And I just... I don't know. Mm.
1: But then I suppose seeing those, you know, ordinary people's lives serialised in a comic, even though there perhaps aren't comics like that, you know, in the current day, although there are graphic novels, perhaps then that in a way empowered you to think people used to be able to tell stories like this. Perhaps there's a gap in the market for people to do so again.
4: Maybe, yeah. I sort of... I just just felt that... It's it's important to have graphic novels because so many people don't like reading or find reading challenging. You know, even as adults, you know, they find it quite daunting. And I think if you can, I like what I like to try and do, and I especially try to do it with kitties particularly, was to tell the picture with the story. So even if you couldn't read the words, you could still probably glean most of the story, which I think is quite important. Like those, the Raymond Briggs ones, I think The Snowman and the Father Christmas, there's hardly any words, Mm. but you can you don't need them but if you do manage to read the words like in kitty or in well, when i used to read comics because i was such a bad reader i didn't when i first started reading them i didn't i couldn't read the words it was just looking at the pictures and then when i when you do finally get the words it's just like an added bonus of like icing on the you know oh that's why she's wearing that dress or something you know it's just extra so yeah okay so cheery kak is about it's about lots of things it's a coming of age story again and it's a dominantly about two sisters and it's about religion, it's about being gay, it's about being dyslexic, it's about all sorts of things. It's about grief of the children who've lost their mother. And um, Cake started off originally as a, as a very short story, which I did when I was on the writing course at Sussex University. It was like just one page long. It was mainly about the dyslexic element of the story. And then um, when I left, I decided I wanted to build on it, and I wrote it as a play, which was, um, I entered for a competition, which was then performed in Theatre Technis in Camden, and that was called Cheery Cack as well, but, but for some reason I set it in present day, and then I felt like I wanted to add more to it, I still felt I wanted to do more with this story, so I um, then wrote it as a novel, which was a massive novel, <laughs> and it, was, it took me ages and ages to do, and then, and because it, it had two two um narrators. So like you'd have a few pages of Jackie, which is one of the sisters, then two pages a few pages of Diana and it flipped backwards and swords. I love the idea that like history or a story even within a family, but two versions are so different mm-hmm. and that really that fascinates me that you can get two completely different versions of exactly the same events. And this this is what Jerry Cat does, because, you know you've got they've they've both got the same experience, they've got the same childhood, but yet yeah, they both view it very, very differently. But, of course, they both have their own issues That they've got problems that they feel. But not problems, but they feel as problems because they feel that they're not fitting in for Mm. various reasons.
1: Well, and particularly because it's set in the 70s, an era that was less accepting of anyone who was different, whether because of their sexuality or if they were neurodiverse. And so, you know, I think you very poignantly portray that in the graphic novel, how, you know, kids today... Um, obviously still have all sorts of difficulties yeah. if they don't fit into, in inverted commas, the norm. But back then, the kind of challenges that were brought about by family pressure, by neighbour pressure, you know, to also fit in. Um, I guess it was important to you, you know, to capture yeah. that kind of time period and how different it was, you know, Definitely. in the book.
4: Yeah, and I also... okay the next slide, please. Is um, I wanted to not just... You know, we must, you know, we can all imagine what it must be like to have been gay then... Or to have been dyslexic in a time when it wasn't known about much, but I wanted to look at how it affected not just not, not say so superficial, but on a deeper level. Sort of like so in the term in the in Diana's character, who is the older sister who who's starting to dawn on her that she might be gay, and she she completely wants to deny it. She doesn't want to be gay because the whole of society and all her friends are talking about weddings and babies and all the adverts are geared towards finding a boy and and it just you know and she doesn't want she doesn't want to be different she just wants to be herself but she can't be herself and it's just really sad you know that she can't she just she feels an outcast she feels lonely guilt depression and you know she's sort of she has to pretend to be someone that she's not and she um has to pretend to fancy boys she she has a boyfriend which I think is really common. I did a lot of, re- there was a really good book called Daring Hearts, published by Queen's Park Books, which I've got a lot of, lot of stories from and a lot of accounts. And that was a really good source of research about how people had to suppress elements mm. of their personality and had to pretend. You know, it's really, really. And she just could, basically, she just couldn't be herself and mm. had, to, had felt that there was something wrong with her. And she didn't want there to be something wrong with her. And obviously, there was nothing wrong with her. but... She was made to feel that by society, and she had, to, you know, and she even actively in the book joins in teasing other girls and calls them leszy and stuff like they, like kids do because to deflect away from herself. Mm. Her friends just sort of saying, well, "Why don't you fancy army boys?" You know, you're, you know they're great. There must be something wrong with you if you don't fancy army boys. And her and Diana's thinking, "Well, yeah, maybe there is something wrong with me."
1: And because it's set in the seventies, so for example, on this page. Um, we see the outside of Victoria Station. Yeah. Um, was it quite easy to get sort of photographic um, uh, depictions of that time period so that you could kind of render the buildings as they looked then as opposed to how uh, they look now? It
4: wasn't too difficult. No, I found just in like 1970, Victoria Station, quite <laughs> things came up actually, so it wasn't too hard. I mean, I don't know how people did things without the internet, <laughs> but, but yeah, so it wasn't too difficult, yeah. And I loved drawing all the clothes and fashions as well. I really... It was, you know, it was like a a real treat to be able to draw all these things, so, yeah. And um, Jackie, the other character, her story is fairly based, much based on my own experiences at school. I just wanted to show that there was more to dyslexia than just being bad at reading and spelling, which everybody knows about, but there's so much more, like, working, like... uh, low working memory, difficulty processing information and, um, and holding information, it's all its all very difficult and that has a massive effect on so many things about, you know, like your coping strategies and, and I did a lot of research, you know, as well as using my own experiences and so many people that have um, dyslexia suffer from panic attacks and stress and anxiety. There's a real link between the two and also which was also alarming is a lot of dyslexic people because if you do have trouble writing and concentrating you don't have confidence to apply for jobs or you can't fill the forms in and you often find yourselves on the edges of society and up to 75% of prisoners in the US and the UK are dyslexic wow. which is a really I mean I, and I've got this information off the internet. And I've found quite a few sources saying this, so I hope it's true. Well, you know, I hope it's not true actually, but I hope I've got my facts right, <laughs> mm. I'm not giving false information, but I thought it was even if it was like forty percent, that's still pretty high. Mm. And it wasn't for sort of like big, horrible crimes like murder and rape. it was you know for smaller crimes like in first offense, you know well, you' just' you're sort of scrabbling along trying to cope because the world seems big and confusing. so mm. that's Yeah
1: so in in those terms um bringing some of your own experiences as being dyslexic my school experiences period, are hasten your, your, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely we won't talk about your prison time um in in terms of you know thinking about your school experiences and bringing them to the book yeah um how did you find that experience of mixing kind of semi-autobiographical uh, experience into then having to imagine you know other people in different circumstances to your own
4: well, when I was writing about it, about, you know, my own experiences about being in what was called the thick class, which is what the girl in the book, Jackie, refers to it as. And she just feels such shame and such humiliation. And it was it was quite emotional because I did feel all of those things. And you felt, you know, I didn't want anyone to know I was in that class. I wouldn't tell anyone I was in the thick class. I, and you, you were kept very much separate from the rest of the school. And, and I hated the other girls in the class. Not hated them, but I disliked the other girls in the class because I felt that somehow they were like me and I didn't want to associate I thought I can't be like them I'm not like them In fact, I've met some of them since and none of them were thick to be honest some of them were one girl had a hearing problem and she's now a sister in a hospital and you know they've all gone on and had proper careers none of them were thick well there might have been a few but I mean that's a horrible word to use anyway because they just learned in a different way Mm. and it was just it was like a big dumping ground for people that had some sort of learning difficulty and with hardly any support. We did, like, one-plus-one sums and read Janet and John books, which is deeply humiliating when you're 11 and 12 years old. Wow. So, So
1: again, you know, like I said, I think that's why this book is also very useful as kind of like a historical account... ..of how things were Mm. for an entire generation. Mm. You know, that perhaps as life is hopefully getting easier, um, people forget that it was such a struggle for people in the past because the school system just didn't really accommodate anyone who was different from, you know, the supposed norm. Yeah.
4: I think it's better in so much that we know what dyslexia is now and people didn't even know what it was. They thought it was an eating disorder or something. They didn't know what it was. I mean, so in so much in that respect, it is better. But um, it's also a problem But I mean, I worked did some volunteer um, reading support in primary schools a few years back and I was working with children in year six, which were 11-year-olds, and um, some of them couldn't read, but they d- weren't deemed bad enough to be statemented. So they were having no support, even though in this day and age mm. people know about dyslexia, there's still massive gaps. And I, you know... So, yeah. Mm. I and mean. OK, this is um, current projects, and this is sort of work in progress. Um, I'm doing a... It's, it's going to be my third graphic novel, hopefully, and it's about... Clothes, or in this particular story, lack of clothes, <laughs> and it's about what clothes say about us in terms of um, how it, how our, how how we sort of dress is you know it affects uh, you know well, my mind's gone blank, and that's how it reflects sort of our class, our history, um, and you know just how we communicate through clothes and express ourselves through clothes. And this particular story, I don't even know if I'm going to include it in the main thing. It's sort of a sub-story, but it's about about class, what somebody has to do to pay for their fees to go through college. In this instance, hmm. and, um, and the next one, please.
1: And you've increased your palette. I'm yes, not- I've
4: increased my palette. Yeah, but I've like really, up with the pastels. <laughs> I, I really like
1: the single colour that you add, you know, to your first two graphic novels. Yeah, it feels like a really kind of interesting stylistic choice. I mean, you mentioned how having a muted palette. Yeah. kind of evokes the past to a certain extent but also you know as an aesthetic mm. it's not something that you often see in comics yeah
4: well i'm trying to expand my um, <laughs> palette and I'm, and I'm sort of i'm experimenting with the so i'm painting that one there i'm pointing experimenting with just different things so this is very much work in progress and it's not it's not i'm not even quite sure how i'm going to format it yet. i'm not sure it's going to be Sort of like through the ages, or one person, or a whole collection of different people's experience, but all to do with clothes. I love clothes, and initially I wrote it for my daughter, because who also loves clothes, and it was going to be it was going to be my life story. But then I changed it and put in other people's stories as well. So it's just I wanted to just wanted to tell a story through clothes and mm. how we, the way we dress, like uniform. I love that. For, But uniforms and how, you know, like within a school, however strict, everyone finds a little way of adapting it, just shortening their skirt or a different colour tie. Yeah, I love that. And it's the the desire that we all have to be individual. Yet some people, like my mother, in fact, who hated to stand out, she only ever wore brown and green because she wanted to blend into the background. So Mm. some people don't want to stand out, yet somehow we all want to have, even if we don't want to stand out, we want to be individual. Mm. And I think it's a a human need to show our individuality.
1: But it's really interesting in a way, though, that's the complete opposite of some of the other stories that you've been telling about characters who are desperate to fit in and seem to be the same as everyone else and their difference not to be, you know, kind of uh, obvious. Well, yeah. So it, it's yeah. interesting that people want to be able to express their individuality in terms of what they wear yeah. um, rather than, <laughs> um, you know, anything about their personality that marks them as different. So I think, you know, that kind of tension between those yeah. two ideas is, is fascinating.
4: Well, in the, in this one, of because I mean, I've sort of timelined it out to some extent and in the early stages they do all want to fit in because they're children and teenagers. But then, as they're slightly getting older, they do want to, you know, stand out. I've got one picture, which I don't have here, where she's, she's, you know, she's going around in a Bay City roller outfit, and they've all got their crop trousers, but the, the character in the story doesn't want to wear crop trousers, so she doesn't like them, so she's decided to be brave and wear the full-length trousers. But she's, she stands out as being different, but she's fitting in because she's still got the tartan, but she's still got, she wants the long trousers. So even within little subgroups... Mm. And I love the fact that when, with clothes, you know, you can tell so much about someone's class, their background, and how the, we're restricted by, you know, costs and social conventions and how we're meant to dress and what's expected of us. Yeah, I just feel there's a, a big area to explore with clothes. I think
2: that's
4: it. Yeah, and I just wanted to say thank you all for coming and listening. <laughs> cool.
1: We've spoken a little bit about how various aspects of the books um, reflect different eras. I mean, you've been talking just now about how clothes are very much a specific time and place. You know, thinking of clothes that might evoke the Bay City Rollers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, earlier I mentioned doing photographic research uh, for Victoria Station in the 1970s. But one thing um, that both Kitty and Cheery Cack are perhaps somewhat unique for is that they show the town of Worthing uh, in different areas <laughs> in the 90, in the 20th century, which is something not an awful lot of books do and certainly not a lot of comics do. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, you grew up in that. I did grow up world. in Worthing, yeah. Um, so, obviously, you know, locating stories set in the past in a place that you um, grew up in will give it a certain kind of, you know, authenticity, a certain kind of, I'll use my $5 word, verisimilitude, Um But also, you know, documenting Worthing in pictures Mm. must be a really nice thing as well, thinking actually there aren't many comics set in Worthing and I've got a certain responsibility (laughs) documenting the Dome and the Regency and Woolies and other locations, you know, that may or may not exist.
4: I mean, I did try to get them as factually right as possible.
1: Mm. You know,
4: I did try to do that. Um, But um, it was was good to do. And I must admit, in Kitty I realised that I... In some ways, I'd missed a trick. I could have done a lot more of Worthing. I mean, though she was, she grew up in the first part in different parts of Sussex, but I did realise that I didn't... Looking at Kitty, in a way, you couldn't really tell that that was Worthing, whereas I think in Cherry Cack, I was much more conscious of the fact that I wanted to make it Worthing. Mm. So, yeah.
1: And it's interesting that both books, both, in a way, celebrate nostalgia, you know, that mm. you've got an affectionate view of different periods, but are also about the characters wanting to move into the future... And that's also kind of a leitmotif in some of the imagery we see, that we have the characters visiting places in the past, like the uh, the place where Kitty goes to dance, that then is closed by the time that she's in a nursing home. Mm. Do you have nostalgia for places that are no longer with us, or is it nice just to be able to document them because they are fading in people's memories?
4: I do. I'm quite a nostalgic person, yeah, I am, yeah, I am.
1: And so, was there a pleasure in bringing these places back to life on the page?
4: Definitely, definitely, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I just wanted to. Then it was, it was a bit like going back in time, really. It was. I felt, and when I finished it, I felt quite sad because I wasn't back in that era anymore. Mm. So yeah, but there's plenty more to do. <laughs> I, <was> like... <laughs> I think I might set the next one in Brighton, to be honest, <laughs> and maybe not this one, but the next one after that. I've got an idea for another one, but I'm going to set that in Brighton. Because nice. I remember Brighton, because we are obviously living in Worthing. You come to Brighton a lot because there's not much to do in Worthing. So, <laughs> sorry, I know.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, no, I mean, uh, but
4: you as a teenager,
1: I remember Worthing uh, in the '80s as as you do, and mm. it, you know, unlike now, it was a bit down at heel. It did have the unfortunate nickname of God's waiting room because it did, of, didn't all it? of the. Yeah. Um, retirement homes, now the Brighton effect because people are being priced out of Brighton mm. is adding to the kind of gentrification of Worthing, but there was a period where it felt like one of those kind of down-at-heel seaside yeah. resorts mm. and maybe that also lends itself to stories about nostalgia, about lives where you didn't kind of achieve you know, what you wanted, mm. and the location maybe suits those kinds of narratives
4: yeah, I think I think where you were brought up does have an effect on you, and I think coming from a, a smaller town that was like the sort of little sister of Brighton in a way it does it did have an effect you know makes it makes you who you are to some extent where you grow up yeah it wasn't a horrible place to grow up I mean it wasn't sort of like it was grim or anything but it it was a bit flat literally and in many respects
1: (laughs) does anyone in the audience have any questions for Susan David
4: Um.
3: I'm a bit puzzled about the lack
4: of colour. With Kitty, which was obviously the first one, and then carried on. I, I did experiment with all sorts of different types of colour, and um, it didn't work because my lines are quite fine and delicate. It just swamps the, it just swamps the work. And I experimented all, with all sorts of different colourways and colour schemes, and it didn't work. Which is better, but I did, but I, when I was drawing the lines and I was drawing the pictures, I think I imagined them in colour, but. It just didn't work. It really didn't work in colour. I've always liked comics and graphic novels, but I didn't do any until 2016 when I started Kitty. So I'd always wanted to do them, and I always did them for families and friends. So there was something I was doing in my personal life. But I never. But because I didn't have a drawing tablet and I didn't have Photoshop until then, it would have been way, way... It, it I just it would have been too much, I think. I just didn't... I mean, obviously, other people did it, but... I'm quite a slow worker, and I don't think it would have been possible. But I mean, I'd always liked comics, was always drawn to comics, but it wasn't until 2016 that I started doing them in any way that I thought I could get them out there, because all my illustration work before that was nothing to do with comics.
3: Just a comment, really, I just absolutely love your line, and I, I think it actually tells the story. am pretty sure what you say about colour, but I think
2: that she doesn't
4: need it. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much
3: thanks, thanks. just to follow on it, it looks like you've almost found a home in the comics because you can tell unremarkable stories about unremarkable people in unremarkable lives and it doesn't have to be sensational or or the or it needs to be so much more it needs to selling so much more so suddenly yeah. You don't have the time to just draw people into something that is just pleasant or just is. Mm. And it, it looks like your work has found a natural sort of space where you can put what you as say. Rather than having to tailor too much to the, the
4: medium. Uh, right I think you're right, yeah, I think that is. Fair thing to say, yeah. I mean, with, with regards to things like films, I've always been drawn to the kitchen sink stuff, like all the Mike Lee stuff. I love all of that and all those old 1960s, Taste of Honey, and that sort of stuff. No, there aren't. So I mean, I've always been drawn to that the sort of the the day-to-day issues of people's lives, and yeah, and doing Kitty and Cherry Cat really was a perfect vehicle for sort of exploring it doing I haven't got a publisher for the third one, but hopefully when it's finished, I'll approach them and hopefully hear. they'll say yes, I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's a long way. I mean, this one here, oh no, not, I'll be back Sorry to that one. But um, the, one, the one I'm working on now is a long way from being finished. It's at least another year's worth of work to do before it's finished. Mm. I mean, obviously I'll put the more finished images up, but there are some that are just stick people still, or just notes. So.
1: There's a question from Paul in the chat. Uh, Susan, would you ever return to characters? Cheeky Cack leaves us with a kind of cliffhanger. Do you think you would continue <laughs> that in a second volume?
4: No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has crossed my mind, and I think people have mentioned, but um, probably not. No. No.
1: I mean, it's intriguing that you do end it on a kind of cliffhanger Hmm. was that a choice that you made right from the start
4: um to some extent yeah I always wanted to leave it open I didn't I don't know how it's not going to spoil it, but I mean I didn't know whether the woman was going to be on this you know I wasn't sure if I was going to have the one standing on the station or just the fact that the train had pulled away and you didn't even know she'd got off the train so I always wanted to leave it sort of fairly open-ended yeah Hmm. but the point I think was it if it was is that that both the characters, hopefully, had found some sort of escape and didn't need... The mother coming back was like they were pinning their hopes on, especially the older was pinning her hopes on this, this mother coming back and it was going to change her life miraculously. I think she realised, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. They'd, the mother basically burnt her boats, unfortunately. She'd, you know, coming back wouldn't have made any difference to the... You know, because the youngest girl decided that school was so rubbish she was going to spend all her time playing truant and have underage sex. So she was feeling quite happy with herself because she'd found a way out. And then the older girl, you know, she was just... I think she was slowly coming to the terms that her mum wasn't this amazing saint, that, you know, she realised that she was actually a pretty crap mother and although she hadn't actually found any resolution for what she was going to do, she was on the verge of leaving school and she'd already mentioned that she wanted to go on to further education and that, you know, and and this, she'd suddenly let go of this big image of her her lovely mother and coming back and it was all going to be wonderful. So, I wanted to leave it. Both the girls had found some sort of resolution. But whether the mother went round to see them or not, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So,
1: well, I suppose, you know, if you are telling any story wherever you leave it, unless the main character dies, and you dealt with that in your first book, <laughs> um, uh, the story will continue. And so the audience will always wonder what happens, mm. you know, mm. next. So, it's up to you whether you make that jumping off point a dramatic one or, or something a bit more mundane. Mm. Any other questions? no Uh, on cyberspace last chance no susan thank you very much uh, for coming along and talking about your work thank you for more info about susan sainsbury's work please go to her website susansainsbury.com that's s-u-s-a-n sainsbury.com and her graphic novels Kitty and Cheery Cack are available now from all good bookshops. For more info about Cartoon County where my Q&A with Susan was recorded please go to cartooncounty.com or follow the event on Twitter or Facebook. The next Cartoon County event, as we approach the end of the year, there are various comic book events taking place in London and the home counties. At the Cartoon Museum on Wells Street near Oxford Circus Tube, they have a new exhibition that opened last week called Skint, Cost of Living Creations with W. Heath Robinson. The specially curated exhibition, which looks at some of the fantastical drawings of labour-saving devices by the famous Edwardian artist Heath Robinson, runs until Sunday the 26th of February. Continuing at the Cartoon Museum is this exhibition as a work event, The Tale of Boris Johnson, in which various contemporary political cartoonists take on the career of our ex-Prime Minister, and that can be found at the Cartoon Museum until Sunday the 16th of April 2023. The Cartoon Museum is open Tuesday to Sunday from 10.30am to 5.30pm, with late openings on Thursday, and you can find more information about the organization by going to cartoonmuseum.org. Budding cartoonists and artists on the South Coast might like to go along in the new year to drawing classes by two fantastic graphic novelists from this part of the world. Starting on Monday the 9th of January, artist Zara Slattery, author of the fantastic graphic novel Coma, will be running various drawing workshops, including how to use pen and wash, how to use gouache, and a more generalist drawing skills course, starting on various dates in January and February. Many of these are online, but also Zara will be running a pen and wash course at Phoenix Art Space in Brighton, starting on the 21st of February. For more info about all of these, please go to her website, zaraslattery.com. That's Z-A-R-A-S-L-A-T-T-E-R-Y dot com. Another local cartoonist, Jamie Huxtable, is running a 10-week comic creation workshop course at Brighton Metropolitan College at their central campus near Brighton Station. This runs for 10 weeks on Tuesday evenings from the 17th of January and is well worth checking out if you want to brush up on your skills creating comics or just have ambition to develop your drawings into narrative and want to learn from a great local creator who has worked in various genres. For more info, please go to gbmc.ac.uk and search for Making Comics for Beginners. As this is the last panel borders of 2022, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in and downloading the podcast of this monthly show about comics, and we'll be back in early 2023 with a new season featuring interviews with the likes of Ram V, Brian Hitch, Mike Perkins, Julian Hanshaw, and Alison Bechdel. For info about broadcast dates for the next season of Panel Borders, keep an eye on panelborders.wordpress.com, where you can also download over 500 previous episodes of our show and until then as ever thanks for listening
0: this program has been brought to you by resonance 104.4 fm if you liked what you heard and want to support our work please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm